do I think that there's there is other forms of life out there somewhere? I, I'm on the I'm on the there's a good chance side. But also, I think that the universe is vast enough that there's probably lots and lots more life out in in space. We just haven't found it because it's just vast. Now we're finding exoplanets all over the place. Like a limitation of technology, do you think that you could reach them? We're not listening in those forms right now. Well, it's just inefficient. Why would you broadcast radio waves that are going to get just lost in the space? Yeah, definitely. Like if I was an alien species and I'd been viewing our planet for the last, say, 20,000 years, I wouldn't, I wouldn't engage conversation either. We are like that crazy dude in a bus stop. You know, we stink, we're horrible to each other, you know, we're wrecking the place we live. Would you want to be friends with, with us? I wouldn't. We have not shown a great ability to work well with other cultures. Not only are you not the only beings, but maybe you're not the most intelligent, developed. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like God loves them a lot more than us. From Outface Productions, this is Listening Glass. Today's topic requires a bit of setup, and the first thing we need to talk about is something called the Drake Equation. Have you heard of it? Uh, no. You haven't? Oh, that's exciting. Are you just playing? You know, okay. (laughs) I'll say this. I know that there is a thing called the Drake Equation, but Uh, I have not actually read about it at all. It's actually a very simple thing where this guy, something Drake, came up with it in the early 60s. This was right around when people were starting to talk about actively exploring for extraterrestrial life. He wanted to figure out... UFOs and stuff? Yeah, like aliens, okay? Hmm. So he wanted to figure out, okay, what's the likelihood that there's other planets that have civilized life on it that are able to communicate with us? He just went through a series of basically ifs. It's a series of circumstances that would lead a planet to have civilized life. And so it's just a number of factors. So the first one is he takes into the... He takes into account the average rate of star formation in the galaxy and then multiplies that by the fraction of stars that have planets and then multiplies that by the the number of planets that can potentially support life per star that has planets. So this is is the way to think of that. That is it's the number of planets around a star that could support life. And sometimes people talk about this like Goldilocks zone where, for example, Mercury is very close to the sun too hot pluto's way out there and it's not even a planet anymore too cold and earth is in this little they call it goldilocks zone where just it's right. just right right okay and so so what you're saying is we live on a porridge planet <laughs> <laughs> mm, that doesn't sound too bad it's better than you know how some people would describe our planet <laughs> but Fetters. we have a wonderful planet all things considered and how, so that's that's the next step in the equation. And then how many of the planets that can support life will support life that develop civilizations? And then from there, how many of those civilizations will develop technologies that's detectable by us? And then the final thing on the cake is whether or not those civilizations existed at a time where they sent signals that we would detect them currently or during our period of time where we're actually scanning for them and we've only been scanning for them for a little more than 50 years right and and actively listening yeah which on a cosmic scale is not a very long time at all (laughs) Mm -hmm. so 
that's the Drake equation. It's really cool. I even heard a podcast once that talked about romance and like the likelihood of finding a girlfriend in a geographic area based on this kind of reasoning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, well, Fair how many enough. people are women and how many people are, you know, n- not over six feet and how many people have like a college degree or like whatever your criteria are. And, um, that I think, a, I don't know if it was Radio Lab, Lab that did that, but it was an interesting show. So, all right. So, so what are we talking about today? Okay. That's the Drake equation. How likely is planet to exist? And the people who've crunched the numbers on this basically have let, come. Let, to- let's just get clear. So, how likely is it that there are other planets in existence which could theoretically support? life intelligent life that can communicate intelligent life that can communicate okay okay so that's where we're at and i'm just going to go a little bit more into detail just because there's everyone has come to the conclusion that it's extremely likely that there's other planets that have civilized life that should be talking to us is it everyone everybody <laughs> everyone who's go, go, anyone go talk to the guy at the the bus stop yeah. Okay, he's going to be like, yeah, I totally, totally I've got my napkin math right here, and it totally checks out. We should just be swimming. It's just highly likely. Swimming in alien signals. ETs right? should like, just be phoning There should be home. a Tinder for aliens. Is, <laughs> you know, why isn't there? That's why. So that's what we're talking about today. Why don't we have Tinder for aliens? And, um, well... Like, can I go into math right now? Just a little bit. Uh, just some numbers. All right. It's, we'll, we'll play our math jingle. Go ahead, Robin. Okay. Tell so us there's numbers. 100 billion galaxies in the universe, each with 100 to 1,000 billion stars in them. Okay. That's a lot. Okay. We think there's roughly one planet per star on average. So That could support... Life. No, just, just planets. So like for every star out there... We think that there's about one planet around. Really? We have eight planets. So we're atypical. We're eight. We, sure. We're, we're, galac- we're above average. Galacto atypical. As always. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, you're okay. right. And <laughs> when and, are we never not exceptional? Yep. Now, it doesn't matter what's in the universe because most of it's super unreachable. So the only stuff that we really care about is what's in the local group, which is basically us, the Milky Way, mm. and our neighboring galaxy Andromeda and mm-hmm. all of the other galaxies and galactic clusters are all moving away from us way too fast for us to ever really be able to catch up. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So it's now <clears throat> quick question. Um, are they observable to us? Can we see them right now? Can we see the other galaxies? Yeah. Can we see the ones that we're never going to catch up to? I think yes. Yeah. Okay. Can can you and I see them in the night sky, or would we need more? We can see galaxies for sure. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Most of them look like stars. Okay. Mm-hmm. But but even so, they're just moving. How fast are they moving away from us? Uh... Is it like like <laughs> orders of light speed? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I don't. I mean, it's not going to be faster than light, right? And so they probably. I just don't know. I don't know the answer fair. to that. Yeah, but, that's fair. But what I do know is that things seem to be accelerating away from each other. Hmm, okay. They're not just moving fast. They're but moving they're faster. Picking up speed. So if you're going to catch them, you have to move fast, faster than they are moving fast, faster. Hmm, right. Like, <laughs> that's... <laughs> I'm glad you got that. I like that. that. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. So, so 
Yeah, we have to first overcome how fast they are moving away from us. Right. And then we have to apply additional speed yeah. to make any kind of headway. Right. Yeah. So who cares about them? They're dead to us. <laughs> and we care about the local group and more specific, even more so the stars that are in the Milky Way galaxy. So the Milky Way has 400 billion stars, which is... So, so just think about all those grains of sand on the planet. Mm-hmm. For every grain of sand we have, there's 10,000 stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Whoa, really? Yes. <laughs> wow. No okay. wonder it's milky. So we're starting to scrape the scale of what we're talking about. Um, and that's just in our galaxy, and that's all we care about. And in of those 400 billion stars, we think about 20 billion of them are sun-like and could have a a sun that's kind of supportive of planets that might have an earth. And we, so of those 20 billion suns, we think a fifth of them have an earth sized planet. I don't know how they determine this in its habitable zone. So in the Goldilocks zone. So now we're down to a mere 4 billion stars with planets in the Goldilocks zone. Okay. So, still good odds, right? Yeah, yeah, still looking good. Tinder for Aliens, it's coming right up. <laughs> it's looking good. We're at, we're at version 0.2 right now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, cool. And the thing is, things are really far apart. And even with things being far apart, we've been around for long enough that uh, most of the stars you see in the night sky are within 3,000 light years. Hmm. Okay. Right? So, if someone like shines their cell phone light at you from one of those really far away stars that we can see. It'll take 3,000 years to get here. And Which, as I understand it, is relatively small. Very small, Okay, right? So the universe is about 14 billion years old. Our planet itself is 4.5 billion years old. Mm-hmm. So there's been a really long time for life to develop on all of these other planets where, sure. just like us, they could have developed literally billions of years ago mm-hmm. or hundreds of millions of years ago. And, you know, depending on how far away they are, we'd be receiving signals. So, you know, people who have crunched the numbers are like, where's, where, where are all the aliens? And that brings us to the kind of crux question, which is called the Fermi paradox. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Cue the, the theme music. All right. <laughs> so, so that's the topic. So we're talking about the Fermi Paradox. And so, okay, Robin, explain to me how the Fermi Paradox came to be known as the Fermi Paradox. This was fun because it made me think about what paradoxes are. And, you know, we're going to get all Webster Dictionary on you guys, basically, about (laughs) what this fucking word means. But um, so para means contrary to and doxa means opinion. And it's the idea of basically having two contrary mutually exclusive opinions that are equally viable and so the two opinions in this case are there's life all over the universe Mm. and the other one is um we have zero evidence of there being extraterrestrial life right so on the surface of it two things which both seem true which can't both be true if we accept like a regular logic right right? okay and so most people go about this from here trying to 
disprove that life is likely or that that yes basically the one way one direction to go is that intelligent life that is civilized and communicative is in fact very rare mm. which makes the most sense to me i guess the other direction you could go is that there's a bunch of it and we just um you know ignore the signs like i mean cop circles come on <laughs> well so so i think this is this is something that's interesting to me is that when you have a paradox you have two sides to it right mm-hmm. and so i think if you want to start digging into it you you can tackle either side of it mm-hmm. right and so i think when a lot of people think about the fermi paradox they start you know they they pick one part of it to either prove or disprove. So why is it called the Fermi paradox, Robin? Oh, right. The Fermi part. Is that yeah, <laughs> that's what you're yeah. asking? You did the paradox part. So Fermi, uh, named after a physicist who, I think he was a physicist, came up with... Yep, yep. Enrico Fermi. Enrico Fermi. Mm-hmm. When was it? Do you, you got that? Yep. So it was the summer of 1950. 1950. So this mm-hmm. is old-ish. And... Yeah. So he, um, this is interesting, actually, he was part of a group of people working on the Manhattan Project. Oh, I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So he was the first person to be like, yo, where's everybody? We should just be swimming in signals and evidence of aliens based on what we're presuming, which is actually that he even predated the drake equation a little bit yeah he did right he did but you know people had probably done their own napkin math and including fermi about well there's a lot of stars probably a lot of planets should be a lot of life yeah um this is well past you know the days of thinking we were on a geo in a geocentric universe right Right. so yeah so this is basically the way it happened was um so fermi was he was walking to lunch and he was talking with some of his fellow physicists, uh, famously Edward Teller and Herbert York, and also Emil Konopinski. Oh, those guys. Yeah. Yeah, those dudes. Right, exactly. <laughs> so so they were just walking to lunch, and they were just casually discussing... Um, they were just talking about UFOs. They were talking about mm. ETs. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of like you would with your friends, right? And so... Anyway, it was just like a very casual thing. They they chatted about it. They let it go, right? They started talking about other stuff. And all of a sudden, like right in the middle of lunch, unbidden, Enrico Fermi just out of nowhere says something like, where are they? Or, well, okay, like where are the aliens then? Mm-hmm. Right? And it's interesting how it's like it had just been germinating in the back of his mind, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and suddenly it just it was like this bolt from the blue for him. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what the hell? Mm-hmm. You if- know what? Like whenever I I like kind of wonder spontaneously where you know my, I have some a favorite T shirt I lost a year ago. Whenever I bring that up at lunch, no one really th- has a second thought <laughs> they about don't- it. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't spawn the Robin paradox. Yeah, the the Nelson paradox. This guy's got some magic sauce. If I have a T-shirt that I knew I had, (laughs) and I don't know where it is, well, well, Hmm. where is it? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get into that in a future one once once we've come up with the uh, the Perkins equation. What's so special about this framery guy and his planets and alien life? <laughs> All right. So, okay. So basically, yeah. It, it. I'm sure that Fermi wasn't the first person to ever consider this, but he just happened to get famous about it because he he kind of fixated on it and. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. he, he continued the conversation around it. And mm-hmm. so various other, you know, physicists and astronomers over the years kind of hooked into that same question mm-hmm. and threw up various hypotheses. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's there's been a lot of discussion. And, and I just want to emphasize that it's really not, it's not like Fermi invented this. Right. Or necessarily invented anything. Interesting sociological aspect mm-hmm. of this whole thing is to like why we're even talking about a name called the Fermi paradox. It's interesting because like if you and I had this conversation, like how many people on LSD in the sixties or something had like a similar conversation and just didn't see the light of day in terms of mass culture. Yeah. Um, and it's it's the power of academia, right? And mm-hmm. when you get a lot of kind of the intelligentsia circles together and they discuss big ideas and throw them back and forth and publish some papers and it's not even, some of it is scientific, but a lot of this stuff is highly speculative. The Drake equation, for example, mm-hmm. super tenuous. No, the, the figures that people come out on the other end with in terms of how likely it is that communicative life exists on other planets, mm-hmm. is they, they range widely and all with good math right based on really bad data (laughs) because we have really shit data when it comes to this stuff it's true we just we know of i don't know maybe thousands of exoplanets that we've had some sort of observation of and that's just a scratch yeah you know of, of what's out there well, so I like that you're starting with this, Robin, around just about any topic, especially topics that relate. Mm. It's just that, like, we just don't know that much yep. about anything. Yep. And anyone who's convinced that we do, I think, is kind of full of it. Now, that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we can't come to relevant conclusions, that we haven't come to conclusions or that our entire reality is relative. I mean, that's that, that's like a bogus uh that's a bogus hyperbole hyperbolic level to take what i'm talking about mm-hmm. but i do just think it's interesting that some i don't think scientists and people at large spend enough time in their days ruminating on how subjective and imperfect our own human observations and deductions about things really are mm. and you know, we're, we're, we're so taken with this idea of like, we have big telescopes and we have modern technology yeah. and there are smart physicists and Harvard and all of this stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, NASA, yeah. uh, all, all of this cool stuff, which surely must be <laughs> producing some hard and fast data that we can eventually hang our hats on, right? I, I'll just say my faith in science has been totally dispelled by my experience with the American healthcare system. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all, we all hook into it somewhere, right? <laughs> we, we all learn that Santa Claus doesn't exist in some way or another. But, but 
I think you're going to finish your thought and then I wanted to say something about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, sure. So so that was just it, is that I like starting this conversation with a discussion of the imperfections yeah. of human technology and perception and and the quality of our deductive reasoning. Okay. And I'm not trying to say that people aren't smart, although they don't come up with good stuff. Mm-hmm. I, it's just that I think it's, it's always good to remember, especially in conversations like this, mm. which are, you know, even kind of, People at the forefront of the topic are just relying on the wildest of speculations Mm. because for all that we know or think that we know about this stuff, it's a very small drop in the bucket compared to all of the stuff that we don't know about. Okay. Okay. You ready for my impassioned case for science? Go for (laughs) it. Lay it on me. I think that humans overall are kind of morons, including myself. Okay. And- that I wouldn't disagree. 90% of my ideas throughout a given day are just rubbish, right? Yeah. And, and so we become, you know, filters. And But the the cool thing is, is that we're a species that occasionally has brilliant ideas. Mm. And those are the ones, hopefully, that we inject culturally into our society and perpetuate and spread and grow. And that I think that's what science is about. Is yeah. And I think that the best scientists are the ones who have humility about what we do know and what mm. what we what state we're currently in. And science isn't really a body. It is somewhat a it's not a body of knowledge, actually. It produces one, but it's a method. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of dealing with ideas and information and a way of developing those in a way that, that it can be vetted and, and pushed forward. And so um, I'm a, I'm a believer in it. And I think a lot of people, it's, it's easy to kind of typecast scientists as know-it-alls who are arrogant, Mm. right? And who think they have it all figured out. And I think that to be fair, I think some scientists probably do come off that way. Um, But like I said, I think the best ones don't, you know, and the best ones are humble students. Such as Fermi, as classic example. Okay. Yeah. This show is sponsored by Megan Brandenburg Design, your brand illuminated. Does your project or business need a more cohesive visual identity? Do your marketing materials need pizzazz? Megan is your go-to. She also offers apparel design, product packaging design, and motion graphics. Megan worked with us to design the Listening Glass logo, and we love the stunning result. Megan is on Instagram at Megan Brandenburg Design. Find the full link in the episode description. So, do do we want to get into? Uh, do we want to like start digging into the paradox and and uh, how some people have tried to prop it up or poke holes in it? Yeah, yeah, I think we have to. There's there's various ways to make sense of why the paradox exists, right? So we have to explore those. Okay, so <clears throat> so let's go through them a little bit. Now, mm-hmm. there's there's a long list that people have come up with, and I I don't think that we're going to try to be exhaustive here. Uh, I'm just more interested in like Robin, what comes to your mind? Like, what what are some of the uh, the responses to the Fermi paradox that readily jump into your mind when you think mm-hmm. about the Fermi paradox. Okay, the first thing that that comes to mind to me is 
that the existence of the paradox itself is not necessarily a statement on whether or not life is likely to exist. Mm. It's a it's a statement on whether or not life is likely to survive. Hmm. Okay. okay. And so just a really brief, terrible history of life on Earth. Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Mm. Very shortly after, in the fossil records, we see life. Really, oh, really? Really simple life. Wow. But we see life. We see... I don't even know if I'd call them, I don't know enough about it to say that they were single-celled organisms or what, but there was, it was probably some sort of really simple single-celled organism. Those things existed forever. And then we saw uh, explosions of complicated life much later in Earth's history. Um, one of the notable ones is the Cambrian explosion, which I think was about 300 million years ago. Definitely fact check me on that. And there's, you know, there's this development, right? So like mm. first you have maybe not even... I don't know when the first live thing was, but let's say it's something that's not even a cell, mm. right? It doesn't even have a cell. Maybe maybe the first thing with a cell wall is the first thing we call a live that can reproduce. Sure. But before that, we might have had chemicals that were able to basically have chemical reactions with the environment that would produce replicas in, of themselves. Mm. Okay. And then those things started to get more sophisticated. And so maybe something a little bit like a virus, perhaps? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and viruses, I'm not even sure if they have a cell wall. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they are smaller than cells. They're bizarre. Just little, like, I, they're almost like nanobots to me, the way I think about they, them. Yeah. I think that's actually a good way to think of them. They're yeah. like these autonomous, um, primordial proteins. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's wild. They don't have any agenda. They're just self-replicating mindlessly like <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> through I chemistry mean, yeah who else would do that so that's that's how things start right you just yeah. have chemistry running amok and um so then you end up with multicellular cellular organisms and mammals and birds and all of this stuff and what the fuck was my point well i think you were building up to talking about uh how you're talking about how likely <laughs> life is to stick around, yes! right? To okay. start and then to All stick right. around. So, okay. So the, life gets more complex, but it's taken nearly 4.5 billion years for us to get to the point where we have a species on the planet, us, that is technologically advanced and can manipulate the resources around it to start doing interstellar... I, I won't even say interstellar travel because I'm still a bit of a skeptic about that. I'll just mm. say interplanetary travel. Okay. Which is well within our capability. Just space travel. Space travel. Yeah. Right? And space travel is a big thing, right? Like getting to the moon is a very different idea than getting to the nearest star system, <laughs> which is Alpha Centauri, which is 4.2 or so light years away. Yeah. So yeah. with our current technology, if we jumped in the space shuttle and started shooting toward Alpha Centauri, it would take us 40,000 years to get there. Oof. <laughs> All right. All right. So it's um, a little longer than, than I've got left in me. All know? right. But the whole point is it took us forever to develop life, and we've only been around for 50 years. So let's just say like we nuked yeah, ourselves you, you tomorrow. You mean space travel's been around for 50 years. Yep. Space yeah. travel as well as 
our ability to project signals right to other alien life so yeah. let's just say there's people on alpha centauri who are or that, let's say life could develop on a planet around alpha centauri the closest planet mm -hmm. closest star system and we've been sending signals for 60 years or so now mm. but let's say we nuke ourselves in a decade and civilization collapses yeah and it takes you know so we we were sending signals for 50 years and it's only if someone's listening during a 50-year time period on their planet that yeah. corresponds with the time that we sent it from right right like they'd have to hear it in the future so that's four years in the future that they'd hear it if we sent it today yeah and i'm just saying it's like it's 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 likely that we just won't exist long enough for an, another civilization near us to exist and hear us. Sure. Right? Sure. I mean, it's a fairly cynical view of the way humanity's going, but not necessarily not, unrealistic. I almost see it as some, not as proof, because that's not the word I want, but as a, a statement on the likelihood that we won't last very long. Hmm. Because if civilizations that were able to harness energy on the level that we can, mm -hmm. and even greater energy than us, mm -hmm. then if they survived for very long, we would be hearing from them. Well, okay, so let's go into that. Yeah. Why do we think that would be the case? Because if civilizations lasted for more than 60 years, yeah, <laughs> then we should be seeing these signals. So but, I'm saying the silence. Wh why? Here's why? my question. Yeah. Why? Like, because are our signals even capable of right now? Are they capable of reaching Alpha Centauri? That's a very good question. And I did some cursory research on this and didn't find anything conclusive. But yeah, um, the stuff, the, the numbers that I found, and this was thin research, were, it was basically something on the order of 50 to 100 light years that we feel like, based on our technology, if we were sending similar signals, yeah. or if aliens were sending similar signals mm -hmm. to what we're sending, that we have equipment to detect it at that range. And, th okay. and the way that people do this is there we have large satellite arrays on Earth that we will aim at planets or mm -hmm. at, at likely star systems, mm -hmm. right? And listen for a while and switch around. And there's, there's different ways of doing it, but that's one of them. And so far, we haven't heard a peep. Well, it just makes me wonder if, like, if it takes 50 to 100 years for stuff to even travel that far, mm. maybe, uh, maybe it just hasn't even gotten to us yet. You ever been, yeah. like, texting with a girl and you like send a message and then it takes her like two days to get back to you and you're like I mean, oh like, you get a little anxious you know i'm that person okay yeah all right well like just imagine it takes 50 years you know <laughs> i know i mean you, you'd probably <laughs> I, just think they weren't interested anymore right i think my app idea is gonna fail <laughs> well you know, all right you know let's do a little more research before we reach that conclusion <laughs> but i think uh, you know, that's just one of the things that's so interesting about this is that I think it makes drawing conclusions about this very difficult because we're talking about matters of scale and we're also talking about matters of time, mm -hmm. right? 
So like something that occurred to me when I was thinking about this is that, okay, that there's, there's many theories which would indicate aliens are around and it's just either we're not communicating with each other or, um, or maybe we're trying to and we're just shoulder. not very good at it. Yeah. Right. Mm. We're just, and you know, can you imagine giving up on that? Just like, it's like, you know, your four messages in and it's just like, this person just doesn't like, get man, me. They <laughs> just, you know, I made that joke about cats. <laughs> they didn't go for it. I can't imagine discovering other intelligent life and giving up on communicating with them. <laughs> right? Like, well, I guess they didn't care. <laughs> you know? <laughs> We sent out a radio signal and they didn't say anything. There's so. like a whole lineage of scientists who have been trying it for thousands of years. And they're like, number one rule of the job, don't take it personal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, side note, um, have you ever heard about the pitch drop? Uh-uh. Okay. So this is really fascinating experiment. And what someone did was they, they took pitch, which is tar, basically. Mm-hmm. And they put it in like a funnel. And into it, into it, okay. Okay. And the question was, how long would it take <laughs> for the pitch to flow through the funnel and drop? Mm. And so the scientists started doing this, and it was like it was like mid-20th century. I mean, it was a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, definitely like like uh the scientists started doing this and it was like it was like mid 20th century i mean it was a while ago mm-hmm. um i mean definitely like like uh first half of the 20th century mm-hmm. and so anyway so the pitch it turns out takes eh, about 7 to 9 years to start at the top of this this uh funnel wow to flow down no. through to to kind of drop accumulate into a big droplet and then eventually snap off and fall right for one drop for one drop yeah takes wow. takes about seven to nine years okay so then the interesting thing was the uh the original scientist who did this i want to see a time lapse of this oh you can you oh. look, look up the pitch drop you'll be Whoa. fascinated all right okay. so that the original person who did this bequeathed it to somebody else gross okay so the pitch drop experiment has now been handed off several times mm-hmm. and i think that the so one of the heartbreaking aspects of this experiment is that the custodians of the pitch they want to see it drop right <laughs> So, like, let's say that you've had the pitch, like, in your <laughs> office for five years, right? Or six like, years. I wonder how long it's in, like, you see a droplet and it has a tail. There's, like, the isthmus. Yep. Right? Yep. Like, how long is it in the how isthmus long? phase? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Okay. And so, heartbreakingly, what happened was um, one of the recent custodians of it, they set up a video camera. Because they just, if they couldn't be present for it, they at least wanted to capture it on film. And then, like, some, some, like, acts of God stuff happened. Like, they left for a conference over one weekend. And then, like, their video equipment failed. And then the pitch dropped. (laughs) And anyway, there's been a couple of mishaps like that. 
But what I'm getting at here、hmm. is that this is when you think about an experiment like that, it's a very different experience of time, right?、Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes me wonder if there was extraterrestrial life out there that was broadcasting a signal. Let's、yeah. say that signal had a, a frequency that was low enough. That we wouldn't register it as a radio frequency,、mm-hmm. but in their experience of time,、mm-hmm. it was just a normal broadcast,、yeah. right? I think we have to start expanding our minds to the idea that another life form's experience of space and/or time might be very different from ours.、Hmm. We could essentially be. Cohabiting、hmm. and interacting in some form with other life forms, and maybe we're like bacteria-sized to them, right? Or maybe,、uh, maybe they live for ten thousand years.、Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those life forms wouldn't necessarily resemble the kind of life that we're familiar with,、mm-hmm. but they wouldn't have to, because there's a lot of probability out there, right?、Mm-hmm. And you know, people have. Conjectured, you know, we're carbon-based life forms because that just happens to be a very plentiful resource on our planet.、Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, you know, other ETs they might be uh, uh, made out of something else. Yeah,、right? silicon is the other like great candidate for that. I've the, heard that. Do、yeah. you know why that is? Yeah, if you look at the periodic table, carbon is number six, and silicon. So you know how the table is arranged in columns, essentially,、yes. right?、Mm-hmm. So silicon is the element directly below carbon. Oh, okay. And meaning、so. the kind of chemical affinity it has toward other、um, atoms is the same as carbon. Yeah. You know, I don't know how. I mean, silicon is extremely common on Earth,、mm. right? And so potentially there's another very Earth-like planet that did that.、Um, yeah.、And、I think so- it's actually the most common element on the Earth's crust. Oh, is it okay? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting because again, it brings us to this very question of what is life, right?、Mm. How do we define life? Because currently, the only model that we have is the carbon-based life forms that we're familiar. And that、with. brings us back to our shitty data. <laughs> exactly. Right. We have a sample size of one intelligent life form <laughs> on a sample size of one planet that has life. Uh huh. On a in a sample size of, of one, one solar system that has intelligent life on a planet around it. Exactly. So, yeah. So it's kind of like the equivalent of like, like let let's liken it to like people building boats, right, and、mm-hmm. sailing across the world. It would be kind of like we built our very first boat. Maybe we floated like a, a thimble、mm-hmm. in a bathtub. And we put the thimble in for like about a second, and then we took it out,、mm-hmm. right? And then imagine comparing the amount of data we gathered from that experiment to <laughs> the data we now have flying airplanes across the planet. It's probably you know we're starting to kind of imagine the limitations of what we know、yeah. compared to what we could know, right? And so it you know I think it's very. Likely that there are other uh, people mm-hmm. or uh, other other life forms out there, and we're yeah we're just not reaching them yet.、Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's it, another way I like to think of it is when we're trying to figure out how likely life is. 
it's like rolling a dice and it has to let's say it has to roll a one mm-hmm. right but the number of sides the dice could have is anywhere from a thousand to a hundred billion <laughs> <laughs> right. so d- predicting the odds of rolling a one it's good luck yeah. like we just don't have the information we don't know yeah we don't know so yeah let's let's talk about oh, a dude. couple wow i totally just guessed that that's insane like it just says right here between a thousand and a hundred million civilizations so that's that's the range, by the way, of the Drake equation. So the range of the Drake equation in terms of um, how many civilizations there might be in the Milky Way galaxy, the different way that people have crunched the numbers, there's either a thousand civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy or there's a hundred million. I, I find the idea compelling that, uh, you know, there actually is intelligent life. And what, okay, so what are some other reasons that life might exist, but we don't know about it? It's dumb. Okay. It's just, it's not intelligent enough for our standards. A, yep. Um, Okay. I mean, defining intelligent life is interesting. I mean, one, you were talking about time scale and how that's very relative. And Mm -hmm. another one would be the scale of space. And we don't know the kind of meta structure of the universe as far as I know. So we know we're in, you know, a small galactic local group and there's a super cluster of galaxies. And then there's, we have this kind of rough model of what the structure of the universe looks like, but then it, it, you know, there's, there's a limit to our observation Mm -hmm. and you know, this kind of stuff I've never really, I guess I, I don't know enough about the models to really know whether or not I should trust them. There seems to be some consensus in the kind of astrophysics mm-hmm. community about this, but the idea to me that we would know the limits of the universe is it's kind of absurd, Yeah. right? I mean, even the whole... I, I just don't really buy into a lot of the narrative we have right now. To me, it's like, wow, like you think like the whole universe came from a singularity? Like the Big Bang Theory just never really struck me right. And so... I'm with you. Yeah. Um, I'm a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear that, you know, from one heretic to another. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is, you know, when you start drilling down into it, when you start getting specific, right? Like, okay, it's not just that life has to exist. Mm-hmm. It has to be life that we would call intelligent life. Okay. Right. Okay. And Ooh. then... Mm. And then it has to be life, which would have a technology that we recognize as an interstellar technology. Yep. You now, know? okay. So, in in a world in a world where <laughs> we're imagining anything is possible, which we're doing, yeah, then I th- it seems really bizarre, right, to think that we would be on the same page. But I happen to believe that the observable universe. Hmm. Basically that we've done a decent job of discovering some very fundamental things about natural law. Hmm. Okay. And the I I don't readily buy into the idea that things are radically different than what we have discovered through science. Okay. Um I could get on board with that. Yeah. And so the idea of there being so a species f- for example, think about electromagnetic radiation. Mhm. And the periodic table. 
Like those two things together. So we have a, a spectrum. Visible light is in the electromagnetic spectrum. And then we have you know microwaves, radio waves, um, x-rays, all of these things. And we can kind of study the way that they behave. And they, we've used this knowledge to actually hone in on some frequencies that we think would be likely to be used for communication across hmm. okay. galactic scales. Um, and I, I believe it is a range in the microwaves. And it doesn't suffer from a lot of interference, which I w- would be one of my main worries, right? Sure. Is you're sending energy, a signal in an electromagnetic wavelength across tens, hundreds, thousands of light years to contact somebody. And this is mostly empty space. Mm. And by mostly, I mean like inconceivably empty. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right? Like if you're in San Francisco, let's ju- let's just say you're not in San Francisco. You're somewhere where there's a really clear sky and you try to look at something 50 miles away, there's going to be a noticeable haze there. So, and that haze is just like I don't know. Like tens of thousands of dust particles yeah, or something. Yeah. We don't see that when we look into space. And mm. instead of looking over 50 miles and we have that many dust particles here, we're looking over like many light years, light years right yeah. and we don't see that don't sort see of haze yeah mm. so i find that very compelling in terms of the argument that we could accurately send and receive signals okay that's fair and i don't know quite what the logic is that that scientists follow to determine that microwaves are kind of the best bet but they they have seem to have settled hopefully mm. not prematurely on a, a band sure. <laughs> like a, of wavelengths but sure. um it is it is just good to note though to just observe how narrow what we're sending out into the universe actually is mm. right we've identified one property mm-hmm. of the entirety of reality mm-hmm which is, you know, these magnetic radio waves that we're sending out. Yep. We've picked one, you know, or maybe like several bandwidths that we're focusing on that just seem like, you know, oh, those ones look good. Let's try those, right? Mm-hmm. So just, you know, just want to bring it back to the whole idea that we're actually doing very little that might conceivably get somebody else's attention right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, c- continue. That's, I think that's totally right. <laughs> but, so we can crunch numbers all day about how likely it is that life exists in the Milky Way. Yeah. But things are so far apart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite websites is a one called If the Moon Were One Pixel. Okay. And it's a web page that scrolls instead of vertically up and down, it scrolls horizontally. Mm. And... It starts off <laughs> on this with the sun being on the left, and okay. it lets you just scroll through the whole solar system. And it just takes like, if you just scrolled yeah, constantly, know. it would take like hours to get. <laughs> so you have to like click and drag your mouse. Yeah. yeah, and I think they have a system where you can click and go to the next the next landmark, you know, or yeah. planet or whatever it is. And of course, um, or there's a button on the bottom right where you can click and it'll scroll you at the speed of light. And it just takes like forever to start. Scro- it takes, you know, eight minutes to just scroll to the earth. Cause that's yeah. how long it takes light to reach us from the sun. Yeah. And a little more than eight minutes, but you know, and that's our solar system, which is a 
really a neat little clump of stuff, even mm. as, as spacious as it is mm -hmm. compared to galactic scales. Yeah. Right. So that's, I think, our main hurdle. Yeah, just mm -hmm. kind of the space, the space, and potentially the, the time. I mean, the, the space thing, and then also the likelihood that civilizations exist at the same time and are trying to communicate at the same time. Well, so that's a really good point, because it's true. Like, just bringing it back to that whole concept of life has existed on planet Earth for what, like, four-ish billion years? Four-ish, and yeah, us something. humans... <laughs> Right, civilization sprang up ten thousand years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the the beginnings of it. Yeah. So, so our our space worthy amount of time that we've existed is a tiny fraction of the amount of time that we have been kind of our human species. Absolutely. Which is itself a tiny fraction of the amount of time that life has existed on Earth. We're so, pretty cool. So yeah, well, and and I just think that. Yeah, it does lend credence to the idea that maybe there have been like many, many, you know, billions, trillions, whatever number of of civilizations, and they just haven't been alive at the same time. Yeah. Or maybe even if they were alive at the same time, maybe they weren't communicating in ways right. that registered to each other as communication. Yep. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Great Filter. Okay. The Great Filter. <laughs> I think that it's really a question of technology and means. How easy is it to put the kinds of instruments into the world and into space to ask the kinds of questions we need to ask? I would, I would love to just see the reaction of the whole religious sector on Earth. You know, I think they'd be really good with it. Include aliens in the Bible all of a sudden by just reading the verse slightly differently or, you know, saying, oh, no, they, they fit in right here. I think it's apparent from a lot of policy today that people do not care that much about the hypothetical generations to come. Judeo-Christian worldview where you think that the earth, the world, the universe was created just for humans and then all of a sudden that you find out you're not, not only are you not the only beings, but maybe you're not the most intelligent, developed. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like God loves them a lot more than us. They're not starving. They don't have diseases. Yeah. They get to travel to whatever planet they want. If I had a vested interest in a worldview and something like that showed up, I would resent them. We should probably sanction them. In the 60s, George Soros had enough funds to fake a moon landing, but now with Avatar and Titanic and what special effects are, we could introduce aliens. We're back. And we're going to talk about something we've been dancing around for a lot of the show, which is kind of a crucial structural part of the Fermi paradox and the way that people have dealt with it. It didn't spring up until the 90s, hmm. right? So this is, the Fermi paradox was 1950? Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, um, we'll call him, uh, he's called the Great Filter, so his name is probably Great. And, okay. Um, <laughs> Just go with me. Okay. First just, just name go with great, it. last name filter. Yeah. And he theorized that since we're not hearing from anyone, there must be some kind of barrier that, let's say life is really likely, there must be some kind of barrier that life runs into that it doesn't ever get past. Hmm. Okay. And in, in order to become 
quote, intelligent, quote, civilized, quote, communicative on an interstellar level. Mm -hmm. The Great Filter, basically, imagine thousands of life forms developing very similar capabilities. Mm. So some of the first ones would be visual sensation, aural sensation with sound, being able to take advantage of different resources in their environment. Um, instead of photosynthesizing, being able to eat stuff mm. and having the senses required to hunt. And then you build that up to a civilization or, or to a life form that might become intelligent. And even to get that far, I, even to get that far, we look at the history of life on Earth and the occurrences that took place in order to make life anywhere near what it is right now, there were two really crucial things that happened, and we think that they only happened once. The first one was the emergence of life itself and, and of any sort of singular, singular cell organism or multicellular organism that could reproduce. Mm. And the reason that we think that it only happened once is based on all of the bacteria and life forms that exist now, geneticists believe that they all came from one forefather hmm. okay. right they have one descendant yeah and that was very early days and then still early days but later was the development of mitochondria and mitochondria and this was this is new enough science that we didn't learn about this when we were in high school oh wow okay. so this is gonna very off the cuff rough because i haven't actually studied this i've just learned about it from other people yeah but basically there was another unicellular organism that went into another cell an another cell of an organism wow. and then an invasion it was an invasion and it became a symbiosis that was wow. perpetual wow so so that's that's what mitochondria is yes wow yes that blows because i mean i remember learning about mitochondria but i had no idea yep that it was an invasive organism. Right, right. And I, <laughs> I believe they have their own DNA. Wow. So it's it's just this piggybacker that we benefit greatly from. Freeloader. It's a total freeloader, but it's a symbiotic freeloader. It's like, it's like someone crashed on your couch and you were about to kick them out, but then they started doing the dishes. Yeah. And then they got a job it's, and it's started Eddie. paying rent. It's Eddie downstairs. Okay. <laughs> so... It's a new respect for Eddie. <laughs> okay, so so what you're saying is that these are two kind of very unique things mm -hmm. which happened, and if either of them had not happened, life as we know it just wouldn't be exactly. And they know. they seem it seems like they've only happened once. Okay, right? Like we don't have parallel versions of of stuff like this happening. Like we don't have a fossil record of other stuff like this happening and then failing and then happening exactly. again and then failing. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Fair. So that could the great filter could have been billions of years ago when this stuff occurred. Yeah. So we could already be past it and well on our way to intergalactic success. Yeah. On the other hand, there could be millions of other of life forms that have reached a point that we're at now. And then ran into there's the great another, filter later before filter. they could become interstellar. Okay. Right? So so basically the great filter is like, we may not even know what it is, mm -hmm. but it's the thing which may separate millions of life forms from 
the one or the few that actually end up being successful interstellar yeah. species is that kind of what you're getting exactly. at exactly it's ah, it's it's okay. it's the wall between all of the species we know of and the and the ones that can become interstellar and we don't even know yeah. if we can yet yeah right totally and i'm a skeptic there honestly <laughs> i am too yeah i am too it's it's hard for me to imagine us going from where we are to like traveling at light speed and yeah. doing it in any kind of a coordinated, sustainable way. You know, let's talk for a moment about like, what would it take for us to reach light speed? I have no idea. Right? I mean, and even if we could, let's say that we were capable, we were discussing this earlier. Mm-hmm. How would we come out of light speed mm-hmm. in any kind of safe or predictable way? I don't. I don't think we have a great hope of sending us anywhere at light speed. Oh, okay. But, but. here's an idea. I've. I remember Stephen Hawking. There was an idea that was being thrown around around his death, that he was thinking of a way to send basically thousands of little probes somewhere near the speed of light using lasers. <laughs> I think it was lasers. I don't know. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> And um, it was a cool idea, but it would basically be capsules. I don't know what even the point was. Maybe ascending information. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they'd hopefully be able to relay information back mm-hmm. and they could go super fast. Mm-hmm. Now, think about doing that, but then sending tardigrades. Do you know what tardigrades are? No. Oh, man. Never have. Oh, God. Okay. If you're listening, just Google this. And Arjuna should too. But they're basically, they look like microscopic gummy bears, but instead of four legs, they have eight, I think. Maybe it's six. And they are super resilient. They can survive in space. I have heard about these things. They're like the ultimate tiny little life form. Yep, exactly. Like, we think we're cool, but tardigrades are fucking way cooler. These are like the cockroaches of the microscopic world. Yep. Okay. Yep, they're badasses. So if we send some of those guys out, maybe some other simpler organisms, basically we could end up seeding life on other... Uh, Ambassadors. Yeah. And they they will spawn intelligent life in, you know, several hundred million years. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's a cool idea. And it actually made me think... It made me wonder if our best chance of communicating with other life forms might be because we already know that light travels. It's like the fastest thing we know of, right? Mm. Um, supposing we just develop lasers that are strong enough to like send pulses of light, kind of like how fiber opt- optics work today, right? So supposing we just send out these pulses of light at a strong enough frequency. I don't know, that could be something, right? So send, I'm, I'm hoping that's what we're doing with our uh, microwaves, is, right? Is, is, is could, that what they're you doing? You could do okay. exactly the same thing with that, I would think. Okay, yeah, yeah same principle. Yep. Okay, fair, yep. fair. Um, because, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like mm-hmm. transmitting anything larger is just kind of insane. Just say hello. Yeah. You know, In all to, of get, our to get that conversation started. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the great filter. Um, I, I'm curious, Robin, do you think that aliens are already among us? <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> like the men in black scenario? Um, I want to believe. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And whenever I see a story on the internet about, you know, like four Air Force pilots saw a extremely sophisticated, what must have been an extremely sophisticated drone program or, yeah. or it was aliens, you know, yeah. in, uh, over the Atlantic. I'm like, oh, I really hope Is it this was it? aliens. Did we get that? <laughs> totally. I definitely am rooting for that. Yeah. Um, I want the universe to be bigger than us, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to like know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite songs is, I think it's just called the Galaxy Song from Monty Python. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. remember that you're standing on a planet that's revolving. Yep. 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 And the song ends with, you know, like basically we hope there's other life out there because it's bugger all down here. Bugger all down here on Earth. Yep. Great song. Look it up. Okay. So that's kind of your. That's yeah. where you land on That's it. It's like a lot of the stuff I see on the, the Fermi Paradox, and I should definitely give a shout out here to, Kur- it's called a Kurzagat YouTube channel, mm-hmm. or if you look up in a nutshell, or if you just Google Fermi Paradox videos, it'll be the first thing that pops up. It's this neat little animated video. It's like six minutes long. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the inspirations for me, even like wanting to cover this topic. And they... They do two videos on the Fermi Paradox and also one on the Great Filter. And their video on the Great Filter is discussing that it would be bad news, basically, if we found life on other planets near us that wasn't intelligent, because it would be a sign that life is prolific, but it there's a filter there that prevents it from becoming very advanced in a way that it would become intergalactic. Mm. And I'm, I have a very... I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I just I have you this just like very zen attitude yeah. about life on Earth. Where if for I don't know why I feel this way, but like I think humans are pretty cool. Mm. But we're not that cool. <laughs> like in our current state, like I think we have some like improvements could be made, mm. and if we just didn't make it. It's like, I just don't care. Like, it mm. doesn't, it wouldn't not be that big of a shame to me if we didn't become an inter, I would almost be a little, I would have a, maybe a feeling of dread mm. if we ended up colonizing other star systems. Cause I don't know if I really trust us. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm rooting for the other aliens out there who've got their shit more figured out than we do mm-hmm. based on what I'm seeing on this planet. And that, mm-hmm. and that makes me sound like a terrible cynic. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm more than I realize, but, um, I think <laughs> on like a broad scale, I'm not like, I don't know. Am I really that way? So here's a question. Are you more afraid of us colonizing and making war with other yeah. unwitting species than you are about other species making war on us? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Just, and I mean, we, I'm dealing with the same sample size of one, you know, than yeah. everyone else is. And so... There's no reason for me to give aliens the benefit of the doubt. Sure. Um, it's kind of funny. I'm thinking of Star Trek now. The first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation mm-hmm. is an alien life form putting humans on trial. Right. And asking us if we're actually worthy 
<laughs> to be at like a starfaring civilization. And Jean-Luc Picard gives a really good argument. And when I watch that show, I'm 100% with him. And I just wonder how many... You know what? I, I take it back. I'm not a cynic. I think we could do this. Yeah. I just think we, we're having growing pains right now as a civilization. And um, it's, it's, it's a rough time in some ways. And I, I don't mean to say that the world is shit or anything, because I think that we're actually doing really well in a lot of ways. It's mm. just things feel really precarious to me. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just the political climate at the moment. And the ecological climate. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think we should go deep into this, but I think it is worth just noting that there are a lot of people who see SpaceX or uh, stuff like this. And they just say like, Hey, why are you guys investing billions of dollars into space travel when, you know, the spaceship we're on right now kind of needs some repairs i'm kind of there yeah exactly like the old chris rock joke is like put a man on the moon or like put a man on mars put a man in in an apartment like (laughs) (laughs) right so you know there is some credence to that it's it almost makes me wonder if we won't truly be worthy of space travel Mm -hmm. or even capable of space travel until we can get over some of these base you know like like uh maslow's hierarchy of needs number one stay alive right Mm -hmm. maybe if we can just actually get good enough at staying alive and not messing up the planet Mm -hmm. then maybe we can graduate maybe that's the great filter we're done we're doing good at that but in long term we have been yes so far yeah (laughs) who knows Um, what the 21st century is that reminds me with the the great filter research people have kind of looked into this and having a s- sustainable civilization is definitely one of the barriers. Yeah. And people have looked at Easter Island is kind of the classic example of environmental catastrophe leading to societal collapse. Mm. And yeah, as a microcosm, just a little Island. If you fuck that up, you're screwed. And on a global scale, it's a little more abstract. Like, well, like there's always like, we can't screw everything up. Can we, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we just don't really know, right? I mean, we know that climate change is definitely going to compromise the patterns that we're used to. Yeah. Um, and but even with that, it looks like there's going to be winners and losers. And there's but even with like there's going to be huge cost, right? Yeah. To, to life, to stability. Um, you know, projections of warfare, famine, ugly things. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I, uh, before we cut out here, I just want to explore another idea which some people have come up with to explain the fermi paradox which is that um the idea that maybe alien life exists but it's deliberately not contacting us 
right? So if some people call this like the zoo hypothesis, oh, or really? Like, or like the nature preserve hypothesis? No. So it's the idea that you know they're like, oh, those humans, like we'll we'll just let them live in their natural environment. I've、we、seen、won't. the zoo scenario. Term thrown around. I didn't、yeah. understand that. That's what it was. Yep, exactly. Okay.、Um, another. So, another people call it like the planetarium hypothesis,、okay. where it's like maybe、um, it's like deliberately isolated. Maybe it's like a,、um, you know, like maybe there's a there's a reason that they wouldn't want to get us sick, or you know, there's just all of these other reasons. Why people might just want to keep、mm, another life? They're、um, xenophobic. Could be, yeah. Maybe they just don't like us, right? Yeah, or they're afraid of other things. Yeah. Now, okay. Here's an interesting one. People start to get into simulation theory again, Ooh. which I feel like every every philosophical question seems to hook back into simulation theory at some point.、Mm. But、um, it's like we're gonna. Create a simulation with organisms on a tiny orb, exactly. That's impossibly far away from anything else it could possibly. Yeah,、with. maybe we're an experiment, a little little simulative experiment, you know. Sold. So, yeah. Anyway, I、uh, I don't know. You know, I think when it comes down to it, like. Part of me feels like every life form on Earth is an alien life form. You know what I mean?、Mm. It's like it's like we're all we're all our own little universes,、yeah. right? We're all our own deals, and it's interesting how they're even. You know, like like they find life in the Marianas Trench and stuff like this. Or, or think about this. Let's say in a hundred years we get a lot better at. Uh, maybe a lot more hungry for terrestrial resources, and we start、mm-hmm. digging like miles down into the earth. Right?、Mm-hmm. If we then discover life down there, that life could be every bit as alien to us、right. as anything that might come out of the sky. Well, here's another thing: is we're thinking we're we're calling ourselves the dominant life form on the planet, right? And this definition that we have kind of mastered. We think we think we've mastered the resources on the planet in order to capture energy and use it to do、mm-hmm. work,、yeah. to do the things we want to do with electricity, primarily.、Mm-hmm. And it's funny to think if plants had thought and consciousness, they might see themselves in the very same way. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> you know, and makes- they would look at us like, oh, there's like these little tiny settlements of humans <laughs> encroaching on us, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes they go rogue and kill more of us than we would like. Right? <laughs> How unevolved and belligerent they are! <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating. Like, wouldn't it be great if like ETs come down to the planet all the time and they land and, and talk they, to like, the plants? Yeah, they talk to the plants, <laughs> right? And they're just like, oh, these these fucking annoying humans keep showing up, and we、yeah. have to erase their memories. Or the classic like Douglas Adams scenario is that aliens find us and they think the dominant life form is cars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just goes to show, right? It's like, you know, maybe the moon is teeming with life, and we just don't prioritize any of the things, right?、Mm-hmm. We just don't. We don't see it.、Mm-hmm. So, boy. 
I don't know. After discussing this for around an hour or so, I'm just further convinced that there are so many possible outcomes and possible realities that could, you know, I think in a way, what I like about the Fermi paradox is that I think it just highlights the paradox of existence, hmm. right? That um, there are just so many aspects about reality, which when you start digging into them are both true and not true, mm -hmm. right? I think space is a classic example about how like matter, let's talk about matter for a moment. We experience a tangible existence, mm -hmm. but our, you know, uh, recent discoveries have shown that most of tangible ex existence is just space. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like, I mean, it's like, what, what is it? Like 99.99, you know, it's some many, many, many number of nines of of the entirety of reality is just nothing yeah right and yet our main experience of it is a physical experience to me that strikes mm. me as paradoxical um mm. or or the idea that um different organisms experience time differently right like if our planet if you interviewed our planet and talked about what its experience of life had been, it would tell you a story that might not even include us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like those that difference in the time scale between the planet and human life, to me, that seems paradoxical. Yeah. It's like they just that there's such opposite experiences of the same thing. Right. There's a great little video made by some German animators called The Wheel, which mm. is a story of a few stones who exist in geologic time. Mm. And then they're just hanging out being rocks throughout most of the video and chit chatting. And there's like moss growing on them and weather and time lapse and stuff like that. And then civilization toward the end of video just kind of like pops up and disappears. And they're like, huh, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just a blip. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So the way, the way that I sit with all of this, is similar to the way that I sit with individual death, like my own death, and mm. that it's inevitable. And I think I'm great, but I don't think I deserve eternity. Hmm. And I feel exactly the same way about the human race. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, the human race, I'm an organism, right? Which is different than... A branch of life. Humans are at the terminal of a very ancient line of life, and we have the opportunity as a species to evolve. Mm. And that's interesting to me. Now, the species, the hum Homo sapiens as we know it at the moment, who cares? Mm. Right? It's either going to branch out and evolve or it's going to die. Mm. Right? I, we've all had to think about our own deaths. And we've all had to come to some peace with them. And there's so many other people in the universe that, or, or, or just on our planet that have yet to be born, that I'm, I'm stoked they're coming and that they're going to have their opportunity. And that's exactly how I feel about other species that aren't humanity, is mm -hmm. that we all have our time and then it's gone. And mm -hmm. then the universe moves on mm -hmm. to the next permutation.
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Listening Glass. If you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and on social media. Your word of mouth means a lot to us and is a way you can help our humble podcast grow. Special thanks to Kev the One Heart and Heathy Keithy from the Winner Winner podcast, and also to Andrew Noflicek and Alex Damas Jeline for their contributions to this show's interview content. Also, special thanks to Mac Woodruff, Me Body, and Aero Johannes for their musical contributions. Find us on our Twitter handle at Listening Glass. You can leave feedback there or by emailing us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com. Join the ongoing discussion in our community by joining our Discord server, linked in our episode description.